it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, someone I'm super excited to talk to. We have Simon Erickson from 7investing. He is the founder and CEO of 7investing. Great podcast as well as a great newsletter and website. Lots of information he shares with investors. Super smart guy. And as he put it, a self-professed nerd and a bit corny. So we're going to have some fun today. And he has seen Frozen more than I have. So that's saying something. So Simon, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on and joining us today. And we're really looking forward to chatting with you. Dave, I'm really excited to be here. Excited to talk about stocks. Excited to make some bad puns out there. And I think the over-under for me is 44 million times on Frozen. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I've seen it. I said off air, I've seen it more. Maybe not Frozen as much, but Moana, I'm definitely way above that. I'm just, <laughs> It's on permanent loop in my head for sure, the soundtrack. Awesome. So I guess maybe to start, could you give everybody like a 30,000 view of maybe your background, your history? You're one of the 8 million people that has worked for The Motley Fool and or and I feel left out because we never have. But maybe you could give some background so people understand how smart you really are. Oh, thank you, Dave. I appreciate the compliment. I think that my paycheck is always dependent on reading the tea leaves, as I like to say. it. Every job has been predicting what the future was going to do and then try to quantify that as much as possible, right? So I was a direct sales rep in my 20s. I was the guy that was always on a plane or in the car, out shaking hands, trying to do new business. Uh, But it kind of gave me this firsthand look at what was innovative, you know, whether it was agriculture, whether it was personal care, whether it was oil and gas, every market wanted to sell new things and capture higher profits. And that kind of led me to the investing game, right? It said, okay, how can we actually take those profits and put them into new projects for a company. I went back and got an MBA to pursue renewable energy career uh, here down at Rice University and came out and then worked for Chevron and the renewable energy group, right? So we kind of put together the business plans for solar demonstration projects uh, for a bunch of other renewable energy and biofuel projects, which went all the way up to a very deep pocketed organization that was able to fund a lot of that development. Pretty exciting. And then, like you mentioned, I worked for seven years after that for the Motley Fool, uh, ran a service for them that was kind of focused on innovation, whether that was what was going on in China or AI or cloud computing or whatever it might be, going out and kind of finding these growth stock opportunities that were putting their money into what would produce future cash flows and future business lines. And then in March of 2020, I said, you know, let's go out and be the entrepreneur. Let's go take the leap of faith. And I founded Seven Investing to really empower individual investors to make better investment decisions. And so not just writing content, but also making stock picks. And we are now publishing our seven best ideas in the stock market each and every month at seveninvesting.com. So, and here I am today, you know, still watching Frozen and still making stock picks every day. (laughs) Is there a story behind the number seven in there? 
There's a bunch of them, uh, kind of a whole bunch of stories. One, I just kind of liked the tone of it being lucky, you know, and anybody who plays craps in Vegas or, or anything else like that, there's a tone to it. I've always wanted to see the seven natural wonders of the world, two down, five more to go. And then also, you know, the idea of kind of having seven stock picks with a full strength seven advisors, it, it kind of was the right name, I think, to fit with a lot of bunch of different things out there. That's cool. So the seven investors, I'm guessing the people that are coming up with these ideas, I'm guessing that you kind of have a wide range of different kinds of influences as well as styles. If you had to, you know, categorize it, what would you say it would kind of fit into? Yeah, we have a kind of a principle that we follow that we say that investing is personal, that uh, Dave, you and Andrew and myself are all very different investors. And part of what we're trying to accomplish is to get people thinking about what type of investor they are, rather than just saying, hey, here is the word of God. This is the only stock you should be buying right now. And so we, we try to put together a very diverse team that kind of puts this buffet of options out every month, but it's a very informed opinion. Right? Dana Abramovitz, one of our advisors with the team, you know, she has a PhD in biochemistry. And so she's really looking at clinical trials. And a lot of these are smaller name kind of biotech companies, but she's really excited about the science or the new approach that they're taking. That could be different than Anirban Mahanti. He also has a PhD. His is in computer science, but he's really looking more at AI. You know, how is AI empowering a lot of these businesses that are using the things that we're kind of playing around with, the GPTs and, of the world and such, but they're actually using those to, for business cases that are innovative. And that's very different than Luke Hallard, than, than Christoph Pikarski, than myself. You know, we have five advisors on the team right now that are looking in very different corners of the market. Because really, investing is a personal thing. You can figure out what type of investor you are and what you're personally most interested in. I guess that lends the question, what type of investor are you? And are there any unique approaches you've taken when it comes to constructing your portfolio? My background would suggest that I would be an energy investor. I'm down here in Houston and kind of no oil and gas and no renewables and all of that. But interestingly, uh, Andrew, I'm actually more of a semiconductor investor. Unexpectedly, I kind of really got into chip stocks and all of the innovation that was going on with uh, machine learning. It really is something to this right now. You know, we say I see AI a lot. Mm -hmm. You can almost count on most conference calls. You have this checklist of how many times, <laughs> how many the, times the CEO is going to say, right? How many times is Jensen Huang going to say this? But there's something to it. And really the unappreciated part of that for many years was the hardware, the chips themselves. You know, how are you designing these? How are you manufacturing these? You know, how powerful it was NVIDIA and AMD going to be. And um, that was really, I think, more than anything, the industry that caught my attention several years ago. But I'd like to dabble in everything, right? Whether it's space economy, whether it's biotech, whether it's semiconductors. It's a big world with a lot of stocks out there. Yeah, that's for sure. Do you have a part in that ecosystem that you favor more than the others obviously there are the manufacturing side there's companies that do just the design and then you have all the companies in between so do you have a favorite and then does that also change over time depending on the environment or the economic cycle of the various semiconductor players there's kind of, to oversimplify this, three parts of the value chain, right? Or the three parts of the industry. You've got the people that are using the chips for whatever they want to, probably their own software applications. You got the people that are designing the chips, and then you got the people that are manufacturing the chips. And so let's use GPT as an example, right? You get into GPT, you type in, you know, what is Andrew and Dave? Tell me about Andrew and Dave, the Investors for Beginners podcast. And it spits out, OpenAI spits out, you know, an answer for you that is powered by Microsoft, Azure, right? The cloud computing. And Microsoft is using this to continually refine those algorithms to use the AI so that it's giving you the most accurate answer that possibly can. And if, no surprise, it wants to integrate those into its own enterprise software line, whether it's Microsoft Excel or Outlook or anything else. It's got Copilot using AI now to do that. Behind the scenes of those data centers, it's buying chips from NVIDIA. It's buying, you know, the A100s, the H100s, you know, the AI-optimized chips that NVIDIA has designed and continues to improve with each iteration so that the amount of power they're using to do this super complex computing that is machine learning inference that's required for GPT to give you an answer so quickly, they're buying a ton of those from NVIDIA right now, as are all of the other cloud data centers. And then, of course, NVIDIA is not manufacturing the chips themselves. They're using Taiwan Semiconductor to do that. 
These are the fabs that are building multiple billion dollar facilities all across the world uh, that are super, super competitive. Not only Taiwan Semiconductor, but Samsung. Now Intel is in the foundry race. And the goal is, of course, to have the most optimized production of the most cutting edge chips with the smallest nodes down at three nanometers or below now to handle all of this cutting edge computing that's going on. For years, I think that design, to answer your original question, Andrew, I think design has been the most lucrative. Uh, look at NVIDIA's profit margins. Look at AMD's profit margins because they can just continue to iterate the designs. They want to make smaller and smaller nodes for the, the AI chips that they're designing. But it's incredibly profitable for them. And once you start getting some bigger and bigger contracts, that's been the investments that have been the 10 baggers, the 100 baggers, the NVIDIA's of the market. But I also think there's something to be said for the Taiwan Simis and maybe even the Intels of the world that once they get embedded, it costs a lot of money to build a fab that can produce those chips. And there's a lot of IP that goes into them too. So they are firmly embedded as well. And those can be fantastic long-term investments because they just keep paying out dividends, paying back you know, uh, through share repurchases, rewarding their shareholders for decades. And again, it's kind of what kind of investor are you? Do you want to shoot for the moon? You want to go for the companies that are designing cutting edge chips uh, or the companies that are empowering their own businesses through those or the guys that are manufacturing? A lot of ways to invest in syndicates. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Yeah, that's for sure. You know, I have partaken in some of that. I, I own Texas Instruments, Taiwan Semi, and Intel. What are your thoughts on kind of the cyclicality of the, that industry and how investors can maybe... Think about how they, not market time, but how do they think about investing and maybe balancing their portfolio with that? Because it is a very cyclical industry and it's tough if you don't understand that. It is. It normalizes over time, Dave. You know, if you kind of look over five to 10 years, you don't worry about so much of the ups and downs, even though those are certainly there. Uh, when you're kind of going to replace a whole bunch of chips to modernize your data center, you don't just kind of do where like, oh, okay, I'm going to draw by a little bit, you know, every quarter and kind of smooth that. You say, okay. We're deploying this. We want the volume discount. Let's get them all in there as much as we can. 
right? If you want to modernize your cloud data center and make it more efficient, you go out and you buy AMD's chips. If you want to buy something for latency as minimal as possible because you're going to design the metaverse like Mark Zuckerberg wants to do, you buy a combination of CPUs with the GPUs from NVIDIA and a thousand different varieties of what you want to do out there. And so you do see kind of these, you can look at the cyclicality and the financial results of a lot of these companies. There's a lesser known company in this industry called Supermicrocomputer. SMCI is the ticker on that one, but they go out and they install the servers, right? So they're actually going out there using NVIDIA's chips, installing the the cooling, the networking, you know, they're putting the right combinations in the racks that they're putting into the servers at the data centers for these companies. You can kind of see sometimes they have these spikes, these incredible spikes when meta platforms places a huge order. And then they say, oh, you know, we're down 10 or 15% year over year, but a reminder, dot, 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 this is cyclical and we didn't get as huge of an order like we did last year. But again, if you're looking five, 10 years out, I don't think anybody's expecting the large language models or AI or all of these chips are going to slow down. This is still early innings of a very long-term trend that we're seeing. Yeah, when you mentioned AI, actually this morning, I saw in my portfolio one of my stocks had popped. So I was like, okay, it must have been a great earnings. And then I looked at the press release and within maybe the third sentence, they talked about AI and I was like, oh, that explains why the stock popped. <laughs> all they had to do was say AI. It's, it's interesting, Andrew. I mean, there's... The hype cycle is the enemy of the long-term investor. You think that hype is sexy and that it's good, but we don't want to fool ourselves that hype is good for you. The more times you see some of these terms in the headlines of the financial media, it's actually a red flag for investors. I mean, think about how hyped cryptocurrencies got there for a while. Long Island Ice Tea rebranded its name to Long Island blockchain, you know, (laughs) it really happened. And the stock like tripled the day that it did and then came right back down. I mean, cannabis, you remember when everything was a pot stock that we were all Mm going to make billions of dollars off of pot. I mean, maybe that still eventually happens, but it was certainly overhyped. There's a case to be made that, that, you know, 5G and even pockets of AI is being overhyped right now. But as the investor, it's very dangerous to just go out there and do minimal research and just invest in what you think is sexy because a lot of times the expectations are far too baked into those stock prices and they underperform what the market is expecting from them. So how can a beginner who has not seen various hype cycles, how can a beginner avoid some of that? Is it What's your take on that? This might be oversimplifying the market and investing in the stock market in general, but I think it's kind of a combination of four things. The first is the story. We talk about CAM, total addressable market a lot. We talk about how big of an opportunity can this be? That's certainly a part of it. You don't want a company that serves a $100 market because even if they get all of it, that's only a hundred bucks. The first part is, you know, how big is the market? Is there a big enough market that is underserved by the incumbents today that can be grown into? And the second piece of that equally important is the market being large enough is the execution. You know, as a, as a leader of a new company that has a vision to take a certain share of this market that's developing, are you executing and doing what you say that you're going to do? Do you have a CEO that's always over-promising and under-delivering? Or do you have a CEO that's under-promising and over-delivering? And this has been Apple for the last 20 years. Apple always beats its estimates. And it's gotten such credibility in the market. I mean, companies that execute well are equally as important as companies who are serving the right markets. And then the third piece is the financials. There is still financial analysis that's important in investing. You look at margins, you look at return on invested capital, ROIC, Dave, let's say ROIC 20 more times, right? <laughs> yes, John. Um, but it is the company, you know, doing not only what it says it's going to do, but also generating profits for investors. And then the fourth, fourth piece, fourth piece blended in with all of those is valuation. Are you getting a overly hyped? stock that is that has already got all the expectations baked in or is there something missing in the stock price today that you can actually get in where the stock is undervalued and get a good 100 200 return or more uh, just because the market doesn't appreciate what you see in the shares yeah that makes a lot of sense so maybe coming back to that valuation piece i mean i like all four of those pieces but the valuation one kind of speaks to me is particularly when we're talking about semiconductors in nvidia nvidia had some really good news recently and you know with the mention of AI 757 times in their earnings call, the stock price has gone 
how does a, you know, a beginning or a newer investor look at a company like that and not go, well, hey, that's the hottest thing out there. That's what everybody's talking about, AI, and they're the leader. Why can't I just jump on that bandwagon right now at the price that it's at? And why would I not want to do that? Yeah, it, maybe the first step would just be kind of combining those first two, right? Is the market big and are they executing well? You know, one of the reasons that the stock popped so much here recently, earlier this year, if anyone listening to this show remembers, NVIDIA's stock just went parabolic, skyrocketed, became like the the stock of 2023. Uh, and it was because they issued a guidance for an $11 billion quarter that was that was upcoming. And then they did it. You know, it wasn't like they were just kind of pulling that out of thin air. They had a huge market that they were grabbing their share of. They were executing really, really well. And you had Jensen Huang, the head of NVIDIA, CEO of NVIDIA, they were just like, yeah, there's an opportunity for our GPUs, our graphics processing units, to reduce the overall power consumption, watt per teraflop, trillion of floating point operations per second. I warned you about those rabbit holes, guys. Yeah. But you know the power consumption per performance was very low for NVIDIA's chips. And of course, if you're a cloud data center, if you want to do AI, That's you want to be able to do all these things. You want to have the chips that can keep up with what you're being asked to. But you don't want to be spending, you know, an arm and a leg to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So NVIDIA, I mean, how do you catch NVIDIA at that point? You've got to have either a fundamental overhaul of all of the architecture, very hard to do, or NVIDIA just keeps getting bigger as this market continues to expand. And so again, you know, back to the original point of look for the big market, look for the company executing. And then what's the secret sauce behind the curtain? Why is the Wizard of Oz able to pull this off? It's typically because of the execution is founded in a sustainable competitive advantage that can't be done by others very easily. That's a really good point. And maybe we could kind of switch gears and talk about a, a couple other industries that I know you're interested in and Andrew is interested in. And one of those is defense and the other one is cell towers. So maybe you could kind of give a a 30,000 foot view of maybe the defense industry and maybe why that's something that's interesting to you. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, maybe the 30,000-foot view is is three words, right? Russia, China, Taiwan. Very tense geopolitical situation in the entire world right now. And I don't think America or its allies are are cutting back on the defense budget. I think that's something that's got to be out there. You talk about hypersonic missile programs and, you know, just the response to those. It's getting pretty intense out there. And the U.S. has committed to growing its defense budget for several years. And there's only a handful of prime defense contractors, Lockheed Martin being one of them, Raytheon being one of them, a handful of others that are going to keep getting those massive contracts and then subcontracting out a lot of those programs. Lockheed, as you mentioned, is a great one because they really know what they're doing, right? The fighter jets, you know, everything that they've built are programs they continue to iterate on. They put X dollars into growing those programs and all of the people and the IP that they need to do that. And then they share out the rest of the profits with investors through dividends and buying back shares. And this is kind of, again, that capital allocation piece. Are you doing this really, really efficiently uh, where this growing defense budget due to global uncertainties in the world and geopolitical risks in the world, there's a benefit to investors in that. And if you're an investor and you keep getting those dividend checks, why not buy more and more shares of Lockheed, right? Compound your returns even farther because if you think this is going to continue, as, as I think that it's going to continue, you can really juice your returns even farther by buying back more shares that are paying you more and more dividends to buy back more shares over time. Great long-term investment, Lockheed Martin. What's your opinion on how to determine if a management and a company actually is a good capital allocator? They'll disclose the discretionary spend of a uh, Typically, it's either capital, let me step back, companies, when they pay all of their own operating expenses and then any of the interest expenses that they need to service debt, they'll have free cash flow left over or variations of free cash flow. Sometimes we call this adjusted free cash flow. Sometimes we call this adjusted funds from operations. What's going into the bank after you pay all of your bills? And that's kind of discretionary for management to say, management to allocate however they want to. They might say, hey, let's boost the dividend. We got a lot of money right now. What do we do? Let's just pay it right back out to shareholders. Could be let's grow this program, right? Let's spend a lot more on this program that internally is providing a very, very good internal rate of return. Could be let's just buy back our shares. We think our stock is undervalued right now. Let's go buy back a whole bunch of shares. 
And or it could be just let's sit on it. Let's put it into the bank and just sit on cash. Probably not the best option, but sometimes there are reasons you would want to do that. And so collectively, this option of what do you do with the money that's left over at the end of the day, we refer to that as capital allocation. The worst examples have been historically companies that make bad acquisitions. HP lit a lot of money on fire back there years ago by making acquisitions that did not play out well for it. Versus a company like Starbucks, who has done this very, very well and the partnerships that it's signed and the repurchases of shares that it's made strategically. I would consider Lockheed and then also American Tower to be two companies that do this very, very well. They take it very, very seriously. They say, how many new global towers are we going to build across the world every year? How much money are we going to put into acquisition to buy others that have towers? We know that we know how to do the permitting. We know how to make these cash flow machines out there. And at the end of the day, if you're a shareholder, you want a company that does that methodically. And so those are long-term opportunities for investors that don't need the money after a year or two years. Park it for five or 10 years because that's going to compound a lot for you. Don't have time to search the whole stock market? Tired of wading through endless information? Instead, get my trusted stock picks at valuespotlight.com. Yeah, there's no debate that the numbers for both of those companies have been extraordinary, you know, whether you put it in ROIC, ROE, however you're measuring that. So how does an investor differentiate between a company that's done well in the past and how do you determine whether they're going to continue to do that versus companies that do well for a period of time and then kind of flame out? That's a good question. Maybe it starts with, is there a disruptive threat to the business itself? Companies like IBM and Cisco and GE were the kings of the stock market years ago. They got disrupted by smaller companies who were doing things very differently than they were, especially Cisco. Energy, you know, a lot of people are saying the oil and gas is being disrupted right now. A lot of people are saying the large automakers are being disrupted right now for various reasons. But you've got to kind of quantify, okay, is a company that's capturing all of these margins and all of these profits and these cash flows, is Elon taking aim at what they're doing? Right? Are the greatest, is Sam Altman taking aim at what they're doing? Is there something that can disrupt that cash flow from a really bright innovator? That's the first question. The second is, if not, um, how are they growing their own business? Are you looking at a company that's got 50% margins that's declining in revenue, 2 to 10% every year, Altria, right? cigarettes? I mean, those are really profitable businesses, but... They're not growing. They're losing volumes every year versus something like Microsoft, who continues to embrace the biggest trends that are out there to make its cash cow, cash cow even stronger. Um, and then, you know, how are you converting all of that with the execution and the market and these, these cash flows you're producing? How are you doing that in the good of shareholders? If it's just sitting on the bank, like Apple just sat on, on cash for so many years, finally embraced a dividend. And that was great. Apple stock has done fantastic since they declared a dividend several years ago. Because they were committed to sharing it in a way that was, that was shareholder friendly. So kind of a combination of those, you know, you can kind of see is a business that's at the peak of its prime? Is Cisco still going to be the largest company in the S and P? You know, is Exxon still going to be this behemoth? Is Cis, you know, is GE going to continue? I mean, there are signs that a lot of those cash cow markets, the companies have siphoned profits off of for decades. Sometimes you've got to see, are they continuing to continue that momentum in the future? Or is there a Tesla out there that, that's going to gain share? And if there is, maybe that's a warning sign. I love that idea. And it kind of goes to that idea of the, the life cycle of a business. And I think a lot of people think that Microsoft and Google, for example, or Apple even, are going to be the top three, five companies, whatever, forever. And history has shown that that doesn't always happen. And you can even look back at in 10, 20 years and see how much the top 10 of the S&P 500 has changed in that time period. And I, so I think that idea of understanding their businesses, where they are in their life cycle and potential disruptors, you know, I don't know how many people saw Tesla coming for GM and Ford and Honda and anybody else. I certainly didn't. So, you know, I think understanding kind of the life cycle of businesses and where they are, I think is crucially important. Yeah, we, we've seen the Magnificent Seven, you know, that the largest mm-hmm. companies in the S&P today look very differently than they did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Even that looks very differently than it did 10 years before that. We've kind of had this transition from, you know, the oil and gas companies, you know, the, the giant, you know, companies that they were had access to natural resources 
that were just being used everywhere. It's kind of like every company was a data company, right? Data is the new oil. The sales forces of the world, you know, really came into, came into the spotlight. And then now when you look at NVIDIA and Tesla, I mean, they have a, a fraction of the, the revenues that a company like GE did or a company like Exxon did or Walmart did. But you just see the execution of Elon is relentless, right? It just, you know, you kind of, you get the premium because you believe that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see even 10 years from now when you start thinking about, you know, what is 2033 going to look like? Mm. Is it still going to be NVIDIA? Is it still going to be Tesla? Or even they going to be disrupted in the next 10 years? Because wherever there's profits, that's where innovation happens. You've got to go after where the profits are. A lot of those businesses, the AI, you know, the electric vehicles, really lucrative markets that is going to attract a lot of competition. Yeah. For me, you know, that's one of the reasons why I like a company like Visa so much is because, you know, they have these huge margins, they huge cash cows, and they have been for a very long time, but they are getting attacked and they have been able so far to repel those attacks and things that were supposedly coming for them and we're going to disrupt them like, you know, buy now, pay later was going to upend the credit industry and that has not proven to be the case. And those of us old enough to remember, just know that that's something repackaged that was popular in the 70s. So it's, it's a little amusing. But anyway, that's one of the reasons why I like a company like Visa, because they have a vote, but they've been able to defend it. And that's, you know, I think one of the things about investing is trying to determine what that competitive advantage is and how strong it is it really. Yeah, that's a really good point is, you know, we say moat a lot. Maybe we incorrectly correlate margins to moat. We, we think of companies that are getting a 40 or 50% EBITDA margin as having a strong moat. Yes, they're certainly siphoning a lot of profits off, but are they going to give that up over time, right? I don't think Visa or MasterCard has. I agree with you. They've maintained their moat. But like a similar business or a tangential business, Western Union, you know, probably has, you know, remittance has moved. Mm -hmm. These terminals where you always would go and, you know, do those money orders and, you know, kind of go in person. I mean, a lot of that's gone digital. Mm -hmm. you know, the other kind of fintech companies of the world have taken a lot of share from a company like that. Western Union, I still remember people pounding their hands oh, on yeah. the table about how strong its moat was. Right. I don't think so. And then you got Bitcoin. I mean, no, nobody knows what to think of Bitcoin. It's out there. Mm -hmm. uh, it's got its ups and downs. Some people think it's overly hyped and it's done. Some people think it's still the first inning that's just getting started. But you've got to acknowledge that crypto and Bitcoin and all these tokens, um, there's a lot of people out there that are really committed, committing their lives to, you know, making these, these cryptocurrencies and these tokens. You kind of kind of got in the back of your mind, you know, is this a company that's immune to that? Or are they going to embrace this? Or are they going to be disrupted by this? So it's, I guess it's clear that investors can't just buy a company and then stick their head in the sand. So, you know, you mentioned briefly about your seven investing service. Tell us a little bit more about that. How do you keep average retail investors informed? Yeah, thanks very much, Andrew. It's the whole reason we wanted to start seven investing was to help to empower individuals, you know, to say, you know yourself better than any financial advisor will know you. You know, you know yourself better than the S&P 500 index will know you, but you maybe are a little bit gun shy about jumping out there and buying stocks. You know, you say, ah, oh, it's a big world out there. I would like a co-pilot to go out there and do some of this research for me and then give me some actionable ideas that I can go out and start investing in. And I know this works because it worked on my own father, who was totally averse to the idea, you know, said, nope, I've got people that handle this for me. I don't want to invest in individual stocks. Great, Simon, go start your business, but I'm not going to do it. And now every month he, he calls me after our picks come out and says, hey, guess what I'm buying this month? I bought your pick. I'm so excited about it. And if you're going to work on him, it can work on anybody. But the point is, you know, we want to empower people to start reading their reports over time, building competence. And what do I look for? You know, these same things we're talking about on this show you'll start learning those and educating over time. And wisdom compounds just like returns compounds. If you get a little smarter every month, you're going to make a little bit better of a decision every month. We start writing down the reasons you're buying a stock and then looking back, not only on your mistakes, but your winners. Every month, you're going to get better. And then before long, you're going to start saying, you know, why am I paying so much money for someone else to make these decisions on my behalf? Why can't I just go out and do this? I know myself. I know my risk tolerance. I know what markets I want to be in. Now I understand that, understand AI. Now I understand biotech. I mean, like there's a world of knowledge out there for us to individually explore and figure out what types of investors we are. And so seven investing has stuck to those principles. If we want to go out there, we want to do good research. Uh, we want to be digging in every day and finding good stocks. 
but let us hand the torch to you. Let us give you the options uh, so you can figure out what kind of stocks are the right fit for what you want to do. It's funny you mention not realizing how, or you didn't say this, but this idea that financial advice is really expensive and you just wonder how many investors don't think about 1% of assets as a high expense, but it's a lot more expensive than a lot of the other resources out there. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got really good friends that are financial advisors. Uh, thank you for the lovely lunches. They are delicious. But you know, for, for people, there is a subset of people that really love that. And they just say, hey, I'm hands off. Take care of this for me. There's nothing against that. But there's also, I think, there's also a subset of people that just don't know that maybe they, they've never considered investing on their own, but they're curious. Let's address, let's kind of give people the tools so they can make better decisions. Yeah. We were talking off air kind of before the show about this idea of a, a barbell portfolio. And maybe you could kind of talk about it because that's kind of how you invest. And I think that's something Andrew and I have never touched on before. And maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Yeah. The barbell idea is, you know, that everyone has a different approach to investing. My personal approach is I like to go, maybe we call it offense versus defense. I have an offense portfolio and I have a defense portfolio. We've chatted a lot about the defense portfolio previously here in this conversation, right? This is the companies that I really like, dividends that grow over time, companies that I think are really embedded, that have got that moat, and I've got a management team that's just going to keep taking care of me as a shareholder. I sleep well at night. I don't have to check every week that they're going to get disrupted. And park that money into a handful of ideas that I'm very, very comfortable with into a retirement account. And then the offense is the opposite, where I am the, the type of investor that just gets a thrill out of going out there and deciphering these tea leaves, probably because of my previous professional experience of like how are markets changing and who's the small cap company, the innovator that's got the right approach, whether it's a different, you know, different fundamental science to drug making, you know, and treating serious diseases like Alzheimer's, looking at some of those right now, whether it's a completely different market that didn't exist. 10 years ago, like the space economy, you know, who, how, how are we getting into outer space? I mean, that's really interesting to me right now. Maybe it's the design of chips, where when we're looking at these newest waves of NVIDIA's chips, a lot of people are still saying they're using way too much power. So let's completely fundamentally redesign the architecture. I mean, things like this, I get pretty pumped up about that stuff too. And so that's the offense side of my investing strategies. You know, there's smaller initial stakes I never take a full stake in the first investment in a company like that. It's always small stake at first, add to them six or seven times over as I follow them and become more comfortable over time. You have a percentage barbell that you like to stick to? Are we talking 50-50? Are we talking 20-80? What, what's the scoop there? Rule of thumb, I probably would commit up to 8 to 10% by cost to a single position. And I let them run, Andrew. I don't have any problem with one position being 25 or 30% of my whole portfolio. A lot of traditional, you know, portfolio theory and things like this would say, no, you want to trim, you want to cut back, you never want to have a position more than maybe 10%. But I'm comfortable, you know, again, water the flowers, trim, trim the weeds, mm -hmm. you know, your highest conviction ideas. I don't have any reason why I wouldn't put a whole lot of money into those. As far as the innovation companies versus the dividend companies, do you have a a mix that you tend to do more of one side or the other? Kind of 50-50, right? If you look at the the pure numbers, you know, some of this is in retirement portfolios, some of this is in trading taxable accounts. Um, I never pull money out of the retirement portfolios, just add as much as I can every year, let that compound and grow. But then in terms of, you know, the more active trading, and again, I like to hold companies for three years, even in the trading portfolio, do a little bit more, more active trading. Do you feel for the average investor that they should follow an approach like that? Do you think it's completely up to somebody? How does somebody determine to what percentage to have a barbell like that? Personal for everybody, I think that the rule of thumb and the most important piece is don't buy a stock that you're going to sell within three years. You know, strat even management strategies take time to play out. If you're trying to get in and out, there's so much, so much algorithmic trading going on right now that individual investors have a disadvantage. You know, unless you want to build AI that, you know, interprets all of the earnings reports and all of the expectations from all of the Wall Street analysts. I mean, the, the market is designed that that's the most competitive part is the people that are trying to turn over stocks multiple times every year, get in and out all the portfolios, all the ratings, all that stuff. The advantage for an individual investor is patience where you can say, I'm going to look at something 
that's not being looked at by all these supercomputers. Give it three years. Find something that you think is going to take a little bit of time to play out. Plenty of gains to be gained in the NVIDIAs and the Teslas of the world uh, that are still really large companies are doing really, really well. So when you think about like the size of the companies, you've mentioned several times, like smaller cap companies, do you, this may be a dumb question, but do you look at those when you try to analyze them? Do you look at those differently than you do the mega caps? So do you look at a, you know, a small biotech differently than you look at Tesla? Absolutely, because Tesla has got superior resources to a small biotech company does. A lot of it, if you're looking at companies, which I consider the sweet spot to be two to $5 billion market cap, that's where I like to play the most. There's still small caps, but they've got growth ahead of them. But you've got to think about the risks, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got a company that doesn't have hardly enough cash on its balance sheet to fund its growth, yeah, I can want to go out there and innovate and disrupt those big guys, but you still got to have somebody pay for the growth plan, right? Where are you going to raise the money from? You're going to go out to the bank and say, okay, we've got assets. We're going to go borrow at 8%. Right now, that's a lot. You got to pay for something like that. Are you going to dilute your shareholders? You're going to say, hey, we're going to go out and do a secondary offering. That's great for the company. That is great if you're an investor that's getting diluted in a smaller piece of the pie now. But I do like that a lot of there's, I mean, there's innovative companies. There's companies that you, you don't want to go against Elon. Uh, Dave, if, if you and I are going to go start a business today and we're going to say, we're going to go head to head with Elon Musk. Bad idea, right? I'm <laughs> he's out. a lot smarter than I am. He's got yeah, a lot way more. smarter than both of us combined. <laughs> but he's, in, you know, you think about, it, but then what, what could you do that can maybe complement that trend that, that Elon is building in autonomous driving or in electric vehicles or what Jensen's doing with NVIDIA right now? There's a lot that he wants to do with chips. Maybe we don't have to go design the next best GPU, but could we get his GPUs installed into servers like Supermicro did? How can you complement these colossal waves that are taking place out there if you're a smaller company so that it's helping them or riding that same train that they've, that they're, you know, engineering a lot of opportunities for the kind of the small caps and mid caps looking into places those big companies don't want to touch because it doesn't move the needle for them. Yeah. yeah. I like those too. I like those companies that can stay in their lane. And to your point, they aren't big enough markets that the big fish will go and swallow, but whether you make 15% from a really small company or 15% from a big company, it's the same 15% on your money. So why not go for those companies? You know, are there any other examples of companies that have stayed in their lane that you've really liked and gotten good returns as a compliment? Are we talking the smaller companies there? Yeah. yeah. I mean, one that's got my attention right now is the space economy. There's all this Morgan Stanley a couple of years ago said that space is a trillion dollar industry by 2040. We say, okay, that's great. How? Who's doing that? <laughs> Where's that trillion dollars coming from? And the first obvious answer was going to be satellite internet for those that have Starlink. You know, we've got one of our advisors based in Sydney, kind of a little bit out of the, you know, densely populated city centers, but he's got Starlink because it works perfectly well for him. He's got low latency. He's able to get on the Zoom calls with us. It's fantastic. You think where else in the world, you know, if you're willing to pay just a little bit of money, is this going to be superior? to one of the large telecoms laying the fiber optic cables to get out there to you. There's a lot, billions of people is the answer. And so a lot of companies, certainly SpaceX included, are interested in in putting satellite-based internet to beam down high-speed internet rather than tearing up neighborhoods with you know digging and all the stuff that's required for that. But then the question is, if you're not Elon, if you don't have billions of dollars to get into outer space, you're a telecom company, you want to offer this as a complement to your existing business. Could you hire somebody to get your satellite into position? And so this is kind of the birth of the space launch industry. There's companies like Rocket Lab that are democratizing access to space. They'll say, hey, you can give us a satellite of up to 300 kilograms of payload. We'll put it exactly where you want. And, you know, you don't have to ride share with Elon. You don't have to go exactly where he's going because he's building the rocket heavy for his own purposes. We can do it for you. It's a little more expensive, but this is how disruption happens. It starts more expensive. The early adopters catch on. All of a sudden, you make more efficient rockets that can carry larger payloads for less dollars per kilogram. And over time, the companies that do that reliably get bigger and bigger contracts and get bigger and bigger revenue. That's fascinating. I have heard from talk about the space economy and I mean, it could be literally limitless because space is limitless. So, you know, the potential probably beyond our lifetimes is kind of staggering. Are there any other 
I guess, sectors, industries beyond that that have intrigued you? You mentioned Alzheimer's earlier. Is that something that you're kind of interested in? Yeah, immunotherapy is going, uh, this is not uh, related to Alzheimer's like you just mentioned there, Dave, but kind Mm -hmm. of similar that, you know, a lot of drug development right now is working on uh, these kind of checkpoint inhibitors, you know, Mm -hmm. helping the body identify the the bad cancers or proteins that it wants to attack that it doesn't know that's supposed to. Um, And so kind of this new wave of science is going after this. And it's broad-based. It's a, it's a fundamentally different science that can be used for a whole bunch of, of different things. Oncology is a huge term, right? $100 billion market just for spending on treating cancer every not even considering all the development for the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you kind of there's a lot of science that is focusing on one specific indication, one specific molecule you're wanting to get these T-cells to bind to. How are you going to develop a drug that can help the body do what it's meant to do, which is attack disease. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, whether it's Alzheimer's, whether it's different strains of cancer, I mean, lung cancer is a huge uh, market right now. It's not small cell uh, lung cancer is a huge one right now. Breast cancer, I mean, there's companies that want to make the cancer-busting drugs, but then also in addition to that, there's companies that want to build the diagnostics to mm-hmm. figure out if, if you can diagnose this earlier, if you can find those earlier in the body before you start showing symptoms, then, then that's life-saving. I mean, that's huge impact to society and also huge financial impact and investors. I mean, investors like me really like the mission, but also like that this is really valuable for the medical world. And so biotech and, uh, and diagnostics and oncology and genomics, all of that kind of blends into a really, really fascinating, innovative wave of healthcare that's going on right now. Yeah. That's super cool. Mm-hmm. We really appreciate, I mean, I get the sense that we could continue to unpeel the onion and, there's so much to learn about investing and the stock market and businesses. And that's part of what makes it so fun, but also so rewarding is you can flip over that special rock that helps build your wealth. I know you have a wealth of information available for free for investors as well, your podcast. So please tell us about that real quick. Yeah, sure. So we do have the seven investing podcast. I know that you all are going to be a guest on that here as well very soon. But you know, that's kind of us reaching out and and speaking to other experts such as yourselves about different views of the market. Again, investing is personal. I I like to go out and talk to people that like me do this day in, day out. Sometimes it's crazy stuff, right? I I chatted recently with a person who's all in on quantum computing. Uh, We chatted uh, about some of the different cryptocurrencies here recently. I talked with a person who runs a vegan ETF here recently. Talked to somebody next week who's going to be looking at AI in the music industry, generative AI, and how that's going to impact musicians. All of that is context. We think it's interesting for a podcast and for what we like to put out there. But in the end of the day, I'm trying to form a view of the world that's informed and insightful enough to figure out where are the best opportunities. And I force myself to just every month say, what's my one best idea, you know, am I going for growth? Am I going to swing for the fences and take on this small cap, $1 billion market cap company? Or am I going to play it a little safer based on everything that I, that I see? And that's our job at seven investing. I really like the mission. I put my advisors up to every single month and say, okay, you don't get to pick 10 stocks. You get to pick one stock right now. What's your very best idea? And then we beat each other up too, right? Like if you watch our deep dives, we kind of throw the gloves off and let everybody take shots and challenge the ideas too. And we've got three and a half years of a scorecard now that we've relentlessly looked at the numbers. And we kind of know now what stocks work well and what market environments and what work better in defensive environments. I personally think it's a great time to buy stocks because there's $5 trillion in American assets that's still parked in money market funds. And that's fine if you want to be defensive and you're okay with getting 5% returns every year. A lot of people are right now. They don't know what Jerome Powell's going to do, what the Fed's going to do. But at some point when the S&P is showing that it's up 17%, a lot of those people are going to call their financial advisors or make decisions on their own to say, hey, why am I accepting 5% when the market's up 16 17%? You're going to start seeing this migration back into equities. A lot of it's already gone into the large caps. Look at the returns of NVIDIA and Tesla this year and Microsoft this year. A lot of the mid caps that are doing really innovative things right now are being ignored, but it's a matter of time until that capital migrates to them as well, because innovation and cash flows at the end of the day are what investors really are looking for. Yeah, that's awesome. So I guess where else could people find more about what you got going on? Where in the interweb can we find you? Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Seveninvesting.com slash subscribe is where you can start a membership. We literally want to make it as easy as possible to get started and start discovering. Everybody who signs up for our premium plan 
uh, which gives full access. The first week is only a dollar. We just said just for one dollar, you can go in, you can look at all of our recommendations. You can look at all of our subscriber calls, all of our deep dives, all of our company updates. We have a community forum. Like we've tried to make it that you, you want to get in, you want to start seeing stocks, and then you want to learn more about it over time, right? Our mission is to empower. We want people to jump in and say, okay, I can do this. Let's get some skin in the game. Let's buy our first stock and then start learning more about that. You expand competence over time. You know, anyone who's an investor is naturally going to be curious about things they didn't know about before. And, and so we wanted to set the bar or the financial hurdle, the financial risk as low as possible and just say dollar, dollar to get in. And if you love it, stick around and learn more about investing with us. It's, it's a long-term journey. I'm certainly enjoying it. We're a mission-driven company. We're really excited about what we're doing out there. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay, so before I let you go, one more thing. Give me your best dad joke. <laughs> Man, I could go on so many ways. What would the fish say when it hit the concrete wall? Damn. <laughs> when do dad jokes start becoming funny, Dave? Mm. When did they become apparent? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> don't, don't start me. I'm, I'm caffeinated. I can keep going for this way too long. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, Simon, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Even the dad jokes. We really appreciate all your knowledge and everything that you laid on our listeners today. And this was a really fun conversation. I learned a lot. I know our listeners will as well. So thank you again for your time. And with that, I'll go ahead and wrap us up. You guys go out there and invest with the safety emphasis on the safety. Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.